Today's teaching will be coming out of three different chapters. For the sake of time, we'll be reading three different portions from those three chapters. So we are going to be in Revelation chapter 17. That's in the New Testament. That's correct, the very last book of the Bible. We'll be reading all of chapter 17. Then we'll also be reading chapter 18, verses 4 through 5. And then lastly, um, I'm sorry, and then 18, 21 through 24, and 19, 6 through 10. So four different portions, I'm sorry. So here we go, and you've got it. Wait, wait, wait. Here we go, here we go. There you go. Okay. All right, ready? All right, Revelation chapter 17. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and there I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones, and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes, and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. And when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to its destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because it once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. They are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for only a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will wage war against the lamb, but the lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. And then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to hand over to the beast their royal authority until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. And then we'll be moving to chapter 18, verses 4 through 5. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. 
so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. And then verse 21 through 24. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of, of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters, will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people, but your magic spell all the nations were by your magic spell all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. And lastly, chapter 19, verse 6 through 10. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And then the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. <clears throat> worship God, for it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Hey, happy Father's Day. <laughs> I wanted to start uh, with that. And so Father's Day to all the dads and then the soon to be dad. Um, and it isn't lost on me that uh, you all, we all carry a weighty responsibility to lead, inspire, love and model how to live life to your children and uh, prim primarily and then to others who are within uh, your sphere of influence. So, um, Stop and think about this. Think about what it really means to be a father and what a father does in his every day. Like I, I, we just walked through, Lauren and I just walked through a time of uh, restoring the foundations and RTF and some of the things that just came up in mind is just the impact that my father had on me. And I think we've all talked about just various different times, whether that's good or bad, just the influence that a father has on everyone's life. We all have a father uh, and whether he was present or absent, the point is, is that you had a father who was able to influence you. And so my hope uh, for us here as fathers, for the fathers that are in the room, is that uh, your children would be able to dance on your ceilings instead of grasp for your floors. And that in that, uh, you would be able to teach them and guide them and lead them uh, into uh, the way that Jesus has also led you. That, they, that a ton of healing has probably already taken place in your own life 
and that uh, there's no doubt that there's that our children will would need to encounter some sort of healing because we're also not perfect. And so just know that there's grace of the Lord that covers you, but there's also strength of the Lord that is able to encourage you in, uh, in, in your everyday. And so I just wanted to encourage you with that and know that I love you and you guys are good, good men. Uh, and I truly believe that about the men in this community. Okay. At Ecclesia City, we say that we are a gathered people in the city for the renewal of all things. And we're united by a common narrative, which is? The kingdom has come. Yes. And we seek to be unified in living out the Romans 12 ideal by living out our ethics, abiding with zealous devotion, serving with sincere love, and remembering with humble peacemaking. And we started this year by going through our first ethics, serving with sincere love. And then we took a seven-week journey through the seven churches of Revelation as we talked about abide with zealous devotion. And now we are coming to the end of our third ethic, which is remember with humble peacemaking as we take an expository journey through the book of Revelation. And so today we are in chapter 17, 18, and 19, which means that we only have three chapters left in the book of Revelation after today. So I've, I've been really excited and I, I don't know about you, but this has really been just an impactful time for me just to get to study, to get to teach it, but then also uh, really just, just it internalize what it is that the Lord has been saying and doing through Revelation. Um, at the beginning of February, maybe even at the end of last year, I was a little bit trepidatious about walking through the book of Revelation as I think all of us are even in terms of reading it. Uh, but I'm actually really encouraged by what the Lord has just been doing um, among us. Yes. And so in this series, we've been, uh, we've been, we're now in week eight uh, of this particular series of Remember the Lamb. And we've been looking at how Jesus defeats evil, both in the seen and unseen. And we've been challenged to remember that the way of the Lamb is the way of peace that destroys evil, redeems, uh, redeems the world, and calls us to reign with him. His perfect justice triumphs over evil and therefore following his way has implications for the way that we live in society, relate with others, and the way that we deal with injustice. And so here's three hopes that I continually want you and hopefully these hopes are hopes that you are now able to know and maybe even say with your eyes closed. The first one is that our eyes would be open uh, to the spiritual realities of injustice. Two, that we would come to see and know Jesus's righteousness that sets all things right and that we would step into our call as peacemakers and live in the way of peace. And so uh, as, as we've gone through this series, I, I pray uh, that those hopes are actually becoming real in your own life as you've been walking through uh, not just the book of Revelation, but also engaging in life all around you. Now, take a deep breath. And I want us to, before stepping into the text, I want you to take an, an inventory of your week. Just this week, okay? Think about what you did, what you said. What were the specific situations uh, this week that left you feeling sad, mad, or happy? 
Think about the thousands of motivators that attributed to the things that you saw, that you said, or that you did. What were the actions that you took? How did you respond? What was at the forefront of your thoughts when you woke up in the morning or stopped to daydream in the day or whenever you ate lunch, either alone or with friends, or for some of you, whenever you took a nap in the middle of the day? (laughs) What did you listen to that influenced you, uh, influenced how you interacted with your world? What songs stick out from this week? What voice stands out as the most influential voice this week? What were the last words that you said before you laid your head down on your pillow at night? And what were the last thoughts before your eyes closed for the day? Because whether you realize it or not, you are being influenced, and I'm going to use a more specific, maybe even biblical word here. All of us are being discipled. And whether it's by someone or something, the point is is that you cannot get away from being discipled. Discipleship within the context of the kingdom of God involves being conformed more to the image of the Son of God or the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a discipleship that recognizes that we are, even as John Calvin says, idol factories. And it's uh, a consistent pursuit to bring glory to God by delighting in him, making him our greatest treasure and making it our life's endeavor to become more like him by putting sin to death and removing any idol that tries to take his place. Now, discipleship within the context of the world's secularist view as we've talked about before, is a reverse exorcism where God is being removed and we give in to the evil or we give in to self-sufficiency. Formation then is never passive. It happens every day you live and it begins the moment that you wake up. And perhaps the most ubiquitous or, even, or, or a different word here, perhaps the most common ways you are formed is through the device that is either in your pocket or is in your hand that you use to look up today's passage. Now, I'm not knocking yet. I'm just acknowledging that all of us have a problem with our smartphone. Everything from what uh, now psychologists and even medical doctors are calling PVS, which is phantom vibration syndrome, which refers to the false perception that one cell phone is vibrating in your pocket when it actually isn't. And it's most often associated with the excessive use. And it's been described as a tactile hallucination as the brain perceives the vibration that isn't present. Or this graphic that shows the number of hours 15 to 23 year olds consume media on a screen versus the amount of hours spent taking in spiritual content, be teachings on podcast, Bible reading or music. And what this shows is that even when using the most conservative estimates, the typical young person spends nearly 20 times, 20 times more hours per year using screen driven media than taking in spiritual content. And I honestly don't even need to show you this graph 
of this digital phenomenon. We're all involved in this. All I need to ask is, what is the first thing that you reach for after your alarm clock, which happens to be your phone, goes off in the morning? For some of you, maybe this isn't a problem where you reach your phone to see what, uh, uh, you know, you put it down at 11 p.m. and the last thing that you may see is some sort of social media, but then you wake up first thing in the morning and you want to check to see if anybody has actually even said or what is new out there in social media at 6 a.m. or whatever time that you've woken up or the time that you have woken up. Now, for some of you, this isn't a problem. Congratulations, you've been canonized as a saint today. But to be clear, what I want to do is this talk is not about how modern technology has catapulted us into the fourth industrial revolution. That talk is going to come in the future, but that's not today. However, today, I am more concerned with what is forming you. Remember, we said that one of the purposes for which Revelation was written was to remind those who have placed their faith in Jesus of the true cosmic or supernatural order that secures them in all of society. What we have seen throughout Revelation since February is the revealing of this true order and the revelation that there is a battle happening and it is real. Now, in Scripture... We see throughout scripture that there are three common enemies or three enemies that wage war against the kingdom of God. Number one is the flesh or the self. This is the old man, the old nature or the old self that exists within each of us, which is in opposition and rebellion against God. This is the part of you that consistently wants to follow your ways, your ideas, or your desires outside of the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we saw in the seven churches in Revelation, and what we say at Ecclesia City today, is that this enemy is to be consistently put to death and overcome by reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done in and for us. Enemy number two is the devil or Satan. We've seen throughout Revelation, particularly when we got to chapter 12, that he is a real enemy who is in opposition and rebellion against God. His primary attacks, listen to what I'm saying, his primary attacks, not all of them, but the primary against Christians seem to be through debilitating accusations that would cause us to be led down a road of chaos, destruction, and death. But what we have seen thus far is that God is on the offensive against Satan. And what we'll see with more clarity and decisiveness next week is the destruction of Satan and his kingdom. Now, the third enemy. We've seen, or we've we've touched on it, but has been more subtle throughout our, our readings in Revelation. However, I believe that Revelation chapter chapter 17 through 19, this enemy is revealed for all that it is and all it aims to claim as its own. And this enemy is the world. A more biblical definition of the world is an organized system in opposition and rebellion against God. Notice how in each definition of the flesh, 
Satan and the world, there is a common phrase used in each opposition and rebellion against God. Now, before we jump into our text, I just want to share something really quick. And I ask permission to be able to do this. And uh, there was one particular night in men's formation night that we were just uh, just talking about the war that is being waged. And at one point, uh, I, I don't. I honestly, I, I think it was more like a, a, a moment of desperation. And I think we've all felt this moment where Alex all of a sudden just spoke up and he's like, does it ever end? Like, does the war ever end? Does it ever end where I have to continually fight for righteousness? He, he didn't ask this question. All his question was, does it ever end? Now I'm saying what I interpreted that question to be was, does the fight for righteousness ever end? Does the fight for remaining pure and holy and walking out uh, uh, spiritual desires and right desires before God, does it ever end? And I think that night, it was a really sobering night because that night, all of us, it was almost like a, a choir that sung out. We all just said, no. But actually, there is an end. Now, the way that the world is represented in Revelation 17 and what is tattooed across her forehead is this. Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. In case you were wondering, this is not what you want tattooed on your forehead. Okay. After seeing God completing his wrath over all of creation in the seven bowls, John is taken and sees the punishment of what I'm going to not just call the world, but I'm going to call culture. In order to understand what is happening here, I think that it is important to go back to Genesis 11. This is 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. What is happening here? Post-flood, people continued to create culture as was mandated by God. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, take dominion. And so I'm just going to submit to you that not all culture here is evil. And so what they started doing is that they started moving eastward. They began to innovate technology and then they began to build. But what they decided to build was a central gathering place that was not meant for the exaltation of God. 
but so that they could exalt themselves and make a name for themselves. They were unified in this endeavor and according to God would have been able to accomplish this had he not intervened. He confused their language so that they weren't unified anymore and scattered them over the earth. And this is how scripture describes how we arrived at various nations, tribes, and languages having their own cultural identity. And what it also reveals is that God gave people over. Now listen to what I'm about to say. God gave people over to the kingdom of darkness and the culture that they were trying to build. Which is a culture that is not submitted under the authority of the kingdom of God. Now, Johnny, where did you get that? I don't see that in the text. Great. I'm glad you asked. Look at how Deuteronomy talks about this point in history. Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 8. Remember the days of old. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father. So he's saying, remember those days of old? Consider those generations. Ask your father and he will tell you. Ask your elders or the older people and they will explain to you. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set the boundaries for the peoples according, now this is NIV, according to the number of the sons of Israel. If you have an ESV or, other, or, or even if you look this up in the original language, what the word that, or the phrase that is being used here is according to the sons of God. Now, when scripture says that God gave the nations their inheritance according to the number of the sons of God, that is scripture saying that God gave them over to Satan and the kingdom of darkness. I can walk you through. We just don't have time for that, but we can do that over dinner if you want. Okay. Okay? Now, what was created was a city called Babel which eventually became known as Babylon. And Babylon was so influential and so vast that scripture uses it as a synonym or as a description of a culture that is not submitted under the authority of Jesus in the kingdom of God, but is given over to the kingdom of darkness. And it's the world that operates in direct opposition to the kingdom of God. So what does Revelation say are the characteristics of Babylon? The first thing that jumps out from the page, and I don't want to get too deep into this right now, uh, is that Babylon is a prostitute. It's characterized as a person who is not in a committed covenant relationship, but disregards commitment and treats intimacy with contempt. Mm -hmm. The world is personified as a woman with whom kings, as we have come to know, are political powers uh, with whom kings commit adultery with. And these are nations that are supposed to be in covenant relationship with God and instead give themselves over to her. She is personified as a woman with whom those who have given in to the enemy of the flesh or also known as the inhabitants of the earth are also drunk 
with her adulteries. Remember, I said, remember that phrase, inhabitants of the earth, because those are the people who have not placed their trust in Jesus and are actually like in direct rebellion against God. And so scripture uses this, uh, this phrase that the inhabitants of the earth are drunk with her adulteries, which means that they are not just sipping on the world, they are gulping the world. She's beautiful, so she's attractive. She's someone that you want to pursue or a, 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 the vision of somebody that is so beautiful that you are attracted to that person, but she's also filthy is what scripture uses. Now, look where she is sitting. She sits by many waters. In Revelation chapter 17, verse 15, uh, the many waters are described or are, are uh, translated, if you will, as peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. So where does she sit? She sits by multitudes, peoples, languages. She sits by society. And this means that she is everywhere and influences every person, every nation, every kingdom, and every language. And then she, she's also seated on the beast. This gives this picture as if culture has a handle on Satan himself. So picture this. She is sitting on the beast, drunk with the blood of God's people, And she is treating this beast as if he is some sort of pet monster. And we all know what happens whenever you have a pet monster. I don't even have to use the word monster. Let's use the word a pet lion. Yeah, I would love a pet lion. But whenever that thing grows up and you think that you've had a handle on this thing, this thing is still wild and it is savage. And this is what happens. It devours. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In other words, a culture that is not submitted to the authority of Jesus and the kingdom of God has no regard for evil. Which is based on who she sits on and no regard for life, which is based on what she is indulging in. And so the beast and the horns, who we see in, in 17, 13 through 14, are kings who give authority and power to the beast and wage war against the lamb. What happens to the woman? They turn on the woman. Where the woman once thought that she had a handle, she no longer has a handle. And the kings and the beasts turn on the woman. They turn on culture. They will hate the woman. They will bring her to ruin. They will leave her naked. Scripture says they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. And if you're thinking, this is awful, it's because it is. And what's so interesting about this is that God put this in there, which is the beast and the king's hearts to accomplish this purpose. The demise of an influential kingdom then happens quickly. So think about that phrase that John keeps using in this chapter after one hour, in one hour, in one hour. We know that the great kingdom of Rome or the great empire of Rome, a Roman empire actually fell in one week. 
I'm not tying that. I'm just letting you know that whenever there are powers and that are not submitted under the authority of God, it doesn't take long for God to bring their demise. And when it does, the kings of the earth who participated in her abominations, they begin to cry. They begin to weep. They begin to mourn, not because of what they did and they feel bad, but because they realize that if she can go down in one hour or as fast as she did, they are next. And so all of whom then make up culture when she, when they turn on her and, and we see that the angels in chapter 18 begin to say, fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon. We get to verse 21, which is what Lauren read. And this is what they began to do. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. Now look at what happens with culture here. Ready? The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. The worker of any trade will never be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants, your businessmen, were the, world, were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. And so the world, which is the enemy that is in rebellion and opposition against God, is destroyed. And so here's what I sense from the Holy Spirit as we come to an end. There's a particular phrase that last night as I'm in the, almost in the middle of the night just saying, Lord, as I think about the world, as I think about how you're asking us that we are in the world but not of the world. As we think about this enemy that comes against us, there's a phrase that I believe that he dropped into my soul for all of us in here today. And here's the phrase, and it's a strong one. And the phrase is, quit flirting with the world. Quit flirting with the world. Now, whenever I heard this phrase, it was a phrase that just caused me to just uh, stop for a moment, put kind of all the papers, books down, and it began a process in me where I began to just take inventory of my own heart because I did not want to stand before you today and give you that phrase if I hadn't taken inventory of my own heart here. You see, I think it's appropriate to take us to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And I think John's warning here is clear. A love for the world means a hatred for the Father. 
And what does he say in 1 John? And what do we see in Revelation? The world and its desires will pass away. So a love for the world, which John identifies as the lust of the flesh, which are physical desires that you have. He also says the lust of the eyes, which are beautiful externals that draw your attention or draw your gaze away from the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and the pride of life, which is not ambition, but it's selfish ambition. They're walked out, but they're walked out with a price. What flirting with the world produces in you is a compromise of true lasting treasure for temporary pleasures. The issue is whether or not the pleasures of the world are worth the eternal price that accompanies them. And I believe that today there is a charge to realize that giving into the world's pleasures and promises only leads to a handing over to the forces of darkness and destruction. The way to be able to tell whether or not you're flirting with the world is to take inventory of what is forming you. We're back at the beginning. What did you think? What did you see? What did you say? What was the last thing that you processed as you were going to bed? What was the first thing you thought when you wake up, woke up in the morning? What was the thing that you grasped for to try to give you some sort of comfort in this week? Let's take inventory of that. You see, John makes the charge clear and entreats us in Revelation 18, 4 through 5. Here's what he says. He says, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes and I believe that I hear echoes of Ecclesia's anchor verse here do not be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and renewing your mind involves being formed by the spirit of God involves being formed by the kingdom of God. And my job today is to get you to begin to realize, if you haven't already, that Jesus is better. Being formed by the kingdom of God then gives way to an invitation. An invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb where we will see the lamb face to face. And we have much to look forward to in our life. And as we see through, uh, as we journey through Revelation, there's a lot that is about to happen. But first, I want us to take inventory of what is forming us now. (coughs) So for ministry time, especially as we step into this time, here are just some imperatives that maybe you haven't considered or that maybe throughout this week you just haven't taken an opportunity and this is an opportunity here. 
what this time for ministry time allows is that if there isn't or hasn't been a marked moment throughout your week where you are spending time with the Spirit of God, this is an opportunity to reset right here. It's an opportunity, what we've said, that when we gather, it's to reorient our gaze and our affections to Jesus. And you are here today, which means that it isn't too late. The time has not gone by for you to allow the Holy Spirit to show you areas where you have been flirting with the world. And then take some time this week to take inventory of where you spend your time and what is forming you. What is it? Now, we, we've talked about this renewing of the mind, but one of the things that I also think is very important as we renew our mind is that Revelation chapter 19 says this beginning in verse 6. I think I mentioned it. Mel mentioned it. We've seen throughout Revelation that there are moments in time where the people of God will rise up in the midst of chaos, in the midst of destruction. And this is no different that when the destruction of the world's culture uh, that is not in direct um, uh, that is not under the direct authority of Jesus, when that gets destroyed and Jesus puts all things right, here's what happens. Verse six. 19 verse 6, look in your Bible. It says, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. And fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So what is this inventory that we take? It's getting ready. It's you as the bride of Christ making yourself ready for his return. And what we'll see next week is his return. How he comes to not only finish the job, but to once and for all defeat one of the common enemies that we have, which is Satan himself. And so for our ministry time, that's right. I want to allow time to allow the Holy Spirit to show you areas where you have been, we have been flirting with the world. And this week, Take a moment, whether it's in the morning, evening, afternoon. Maybe let this be the last thing that you think about before you go to bed one of these nights. Is take inventory of where you spend your time and what is forming you.